This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider, trying to embrace a genre I've always held at a distance. That's Dale Evans' recording of Home on the Range from 1949. Dale will get her own Wildwood Flower episode when we reach the end of the 40s, as she was a significant figure in bringing the cowgirl image to film and television. Dale will get her due another day. Today, let's focus on the song, Home on the Range. I could have played any one of hundreds of versions of that song. Everyone from Bing Crosby... Where seldom is heard To Lisa Loeb A discouraging word To Elmo And the skies are not cloudy all day Has performed the song. You may have learned the song yourself in your younger years, in school or at camp, or wherever kids learn songs. When I first learned the song, I misunderstood it in two ways. I first completely misunderstood the line where seldom is heard a discouraging word, taking it to mean not that discouraging words are rare on the range, but that the word seldom is understood to be a discouraging word. My younger self would imagine scenarios where cowboys would avoid saying the word seldom so as to avoid deflating the spirits of the people around them, as if the American West was a land that was heartened by frequent events. It never really made sense. The second misunderstanding was that this was, at its heart, an anti-domestic song, that the range was the home, that the narrator slept under the stars at night and mingled with the buffalo and antelopes during the day, whispering the word frequently to encourage them. Looking into the history of the song, we can see, at least in the intent of the original author, that this is a song about a homestead. In fact, the song was born out of the Homestead Act of 1862, which promised white settlers free land on the plains. For a processing fee, any white person could get 162 acres if they moved west. Of course, the land was not the U.S.'s to give. It was already the territorial home of the Kaw, Osage, Pawnee, and Ochekthi Sakawin tribes. On top of that, it was promised to relocated Native Americans whose other land was taken by the U.S. government for white settlement. The Homestead Act was another broken treaty to Native Americans, and white people moved in, like Indiana otolaryngologist Dr. Brewster M. Higley VI, who claimed 162 acres in Smith County, Kansas, in 1871. Higley loved his new homestead so much that he wrote a poem about it. A home, a home, where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the sky is not clouded all day. 
It started out domestic. In 1908, John Lomax was collecting cowboy ballads in San Antonio, Texas, when he was talking to a black bartender, a former cowboy who used to ride the Chisholm Trail from Texas to Kansas and back again. The race of this cowboy was not unusual, as estimates of nearly 25% of cowboys at this time were black, many of whom were brought to Texas as enslaved people, and then became hired cowboys after Juneteenth. This cowboy, whom Lomax doesn't name, though he does name many of his other sources for songs, sings a song he learned on the Chisholm Trail called A Home on the Range. It's a bit different from Higley's poem, adapting as it was carried by the cowboys on the trail. Lomax prints the lyrics and sheet music in his popular 1910 book, Cowboy Songs and Frontier Ballads, and the song becomes a part of the mythos of the American West. Is it a domestic song? Is it about a home that is located on the range, or is the range the home? The myth of the West, as a wild, lonesome place, surely true to life for some, was being formed at the time in the popular imagination through novels and the burgeoning record industry. Through songs like Home on the Range, listeners found music originating in this continent, and the hero of the song, the cowboy, admitting Spanish roots, was a North American construct, the Mexican vaqueros as translated by white settlers moving into the West. The cowboy, roaming, ranging, hardened by the elements, passed the time on the trail and around the campfire by singing and yodeling tunes they picked up from somewhere and adapted to their circumstances. Songs about outlaws and lawmen, lonely lullabies sung to anxious cattle, body story songs, ballads of the cowboy life, where were the women in cowboy life? Was their home on the range, or was their home the range? We might know of Calamity Jane, Annie Oakley, and other larger-than-life characters. We might even know of Lucille Mulhall, who toured the country as the first professional cowgirl after impressing Teddy Roosevelt with her roping and lassoing in 1900. Mulhall, Oakley, and Calamity Jane, among others, became famous through touring Wild West shows and, at least in the case of Annie Oakley, through early motion pictures. These women bucked the domestic image of women and proved the cowgirl could be just as daring and skillful as the cowboy. Of course, these were show-business cowgirls, the exceptions to the rule. We, of course, could say the same thing of the country music trope of the singing cowboy, an exception to the rule. The cattle all got frightened and raced in wild stampede. The cowboy tried to hit them while riding at full speed. While riding in the darkness, so loudly did he shout. Trying his best to hit them and turn the herd about. His saddle horse did stumble and upon him did fall. The boy won't see his mother when the words are done this fall. Boy, send my mother my that's Carl T. Sprague's When the Work's All Done, recorded in 1924, and considered by many the song that started the singing cowboy craze. But Sprague wasn't the first to sing cowboy-themed songs. Cowboy and western themes were found in many of the early Tin Pan Alley recordings. Here's a fun version of Ragtime Cowboy Joe, recorded in 1912 by Bob Roberts. He always sings, like the music to the Cadillac Queen, like the forward in the saddle on the horse, 
that a snake spade of jailer, and it's such a funny meter to the roll of his repeater, how they run, when the hair is gone, because the western folks are known. He's a high-polluting, rotten-shooting son of a gun from Arizona, right, same cowboy, Joe. As the singing cowboy trend picked up steam in the 1930s, acts like the sons of the pioneers made cowboy music their bread and butter. See them tumbling down, pledging our love to the ground, lonely but free I'll be found. The real boom began when Hollywood started producing B-movies featuring singing cowboys. The names most people associate with the singing cowboy are Gene Autry, who began his movie career in 1934. I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences Gaze at the moon till I lose my senses can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't fence me in And Roy Rogers, famously married to Dale Evans, who had his first starring cowboy role in 1938. That's what's frightening them. Storm coming up over the mountain. And the herd's getting nervous too. I'll help quiet them down. The man in the moon is a cowhand. He's the boss of the range up there. He's night herding all the stars that are shining from afar. The man in the moon is a cowhand. Autry and Rogers were jolly, convivial cowboys. Sure, things got hard sometimes, but the trail always led to new places and new opportunities to be brave, moral, and just. Even the taciturn John Wayne took a stint as a singing cowboy, albeit with a darker bent, which may be why the studios wisely steered him in another direction. What's the trouble? There's going to be a shooting. Brace up your guns, outlaw, and tight. There'll be blood a-running in town before night. There'll be guns a-blazing and singing with Why, light. that's singing Sandy. Like you'll be drinking hmm? your the most drink notorious gunman since Billy the Kid. The, the singing cowboy was a contrast to the hillbilly image created by A&R men like Ralph Peer. As country music historian Bill Malone says, the singing cowboy brought an image of the American male that was fearless, individualistic, moral, and free. Sure, the cowboy gains complexity and grit through the years, but the cowboy trope established in the 30s remains intact enough to find its way into country songs today. You can have your space, cowboy. About the cowgirl. Let's skip ahead to the 30s and 40s and take a brief look at how three acts helped shape the cowgirl image in the popular imagination. Each of these acts will get their own episode in the next season of Wildwood Flowers, so this is just a taste of a relevant slice. The girls of the Golden West, Dolly and Millie Good, 
Aspire to the cowboy lifestyle in the 1934 song, I Want to Be a Real Cowboy Girl. I want to be a real cowboy girl And wear all the buckles and straps And know how it feels to wear spurs on my heels Then strut about in my shaft I want to tow the six-shooter to Wear a belt that is four inches wide Then ride like the dude On a buckskin cayuse With a cowboy I love by my side To what exactly do the girls of the Golden West aspire? To dress like a cowboy in a four-inch wide belt? Do the things that cowboys do? Find heterosexual partnerships with a cowboy? The first time I met him was early one spring He was riding a bronco, a high-headed thing He tipped me a wink as he gaily did go Boy, wish me to look at his buck and bronco Look longingly at the cowboy life from the outside. I wanna be in Texas, out on old Circle B. I wanna ride the range once more and have my guitar with me. A couple of times they simply just switched the word cowboy for cowgirl. Last night as I lay on the prairie and looked at the stars in the sky, I wondered if ever a cowgirl would drift to that sweet by and by. Roll on, roll on. They did sing first-person songs of the tedium of cowboy life, as in Ride, Ride, Ride. Ride, ride, ride. That's all I do night and day. The girls of the Golden West did write one song that aspired to the freedom that the West provided. This one song of independence is Two Cowgirls on the Lone Prairie. Oh, I had no longing to live in a town And took all my grub on a stove Oh, give me a fire on the Lone Prairie As a cowgirl I always will go I think I owe, I think I gave Shortly after the Girls of the Golden West, Patsy Montana achieved fame in 1935 by being the first female country artist to have a million-selling single, I Want to Be a Cowboy Sweetheart. I want to be a cowboy sweetheart. I want to learn to Open to ride. I want to ride o'er the plains and the desert, out west of the great divide. I want to hear... 
She would try to capitalize on this commercial magic of the song, I Want to Be a Cowboy's Sweetheart, by recording maybe kind of sequel songs, I Want to Be a Cowboy's Dream Girl. I want to be a cowboy's dream girl And live neath the western skies I want to have... I want to be a western cowgirl I want to be a western cowgirl I want to ride across the wide open plain I'm gonna have a cowboy's wedding. I'm gonna have a cowboy wedding when the stage is all abloom. It's not all about trying to rope a man for Patsy Montana. At least not all of her songs. Well, at least not for the entirety of all of her songs. The She Buckaroo in 1936 starts with the self-description of a Calamity Jane-type character who won't be tied down. I've never walked home from a trip to zoo. I'm a man-hating lassie, a She Buckaroo. But, alas, by the end of the song, the man-hating lassie is domesticated. I'll throw away my shaps and get dresses instead. I'll learn to make biscuits and maybe cornbread. We'll live in a town, I think that will do. And goodbye to Patsy the She-Buckaroo. We're not moving toward the liberation that is promised the singing cowboy in these songs, but we are moving along the continuum of pluck from the girls of the Golden West to Patsy Montana. At the extreme of this continuum of saccharine pluck is Carolina Cotton, who in the 40s capitalizes on the yodeling aspect of cowboy life from her Hollywood vantage. Okay, okay, we've taken this as far as we need to. Nothing against these artists, but if you're like me, you might feel like you've just overdosed on s'mores at a four-year-old's western-themed birthday party. Let's go to a quieter, more dimly lit place. Let's get some bitter tea with a little lemon. Let's get some veggies and maybe some hummus and a little dose of stark reality. Let's listen to the story of the first cowgirl singer in recorded history, Arizona's own Billy Maxwell. Standing alone in the doorway Through the twilight straining my eyes Listening to hear the sharp hoof beat When my cowboy comes from the drive Far away toward the northward A coyote starts his refrain His brother joins in the chorus And they sing it again and again Feeling better already. Here are the words of Cowboy's Wife, believed to be written by Billy Maxwell. Standing alone in the doorway, through the twilight straining my eyes, listen to hear the sharp hoofbeats when my cowboy comes from the drive. Far away toward the northward, a coyote starts his refrain. His brother joins in the chorus, and they sing it again and again. At last they are quiet, and somewhere I hear a horse's shrill neigh. I know that my cowboy is coming, so I hurriedly turn away and fix up the fire in the cook stove for the fire door biscuits to bake, stir up the boiling frijoles and salt and flour a steak. Then with the hem of my apron, wipe a smudge of flour from my nose, 
and back at my post to greet him, that man in those rough western clothes. I hear the thump of his saddle as he throws it off on the ground, then his horse gives himself a good shaking. I can readily place every sound. At last I hear footsteps approaching, and I almost hold my breath, for in my heart I am hoping that he'll notice my new denim dress. He comes, but his eyes wander past me as he greets me with a kiss at the door, and I know that he's wanting his supper, for I've been through the whole thing before. So I place that hot supper before him. Oh yes, I shall surely do my part, as I swallow my own disappointment, for I know that's the way to his heart. So I place the hot supper before him. Oh yes, I shall surely do my part, as I swallow my own disappointment. For I know that the way to his In the song, the cowboy's wife waits and listens, catalogs the sounds of the desert, does chores, cooks beans, steak, and biscuits, provides rich detail of clothing and tools in a cycle of work and mismatched affection. Maybe I'm wrong-headed in thinking this is the forebearer of the singing cowgirl. This realist balladeer sounds more like a Leonard Cohen, I hear that you're building your little house deep in the desert You're living for nothing now I hope you're keeping some kind of record yeah. Or a Sybil Bear Time is over Oh, we could simply say I love you Now you open the door Leave me crying Trying to embrace you again Trying to face this damn situation Man, I can't It's the end Friend of mine even a precursor to Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. Papa said to Mama as he passed around the black-eyed peas, Well, Billy Joe never had a lick of sense. Pass the biscuits, please. There's five more acres in the lower 40 I got to plow. Billy Maxwell, the first woman to write and perform cowboy music, tells a different story from Patsy Montana and Carolina Cotton. A bleak and starkly realistic story of what it means to be a cowboy's wife, not the expansive liberty of the singing cowboy and cowgirl. Born in 1906, six years after Arizona became a state, near Springerville, Arizona, in Nutrioso, on the Pueblos and Western Apache native lands, Billy, as you might guess, is a nickname. Her birth name is Willie Maxwell, and she was named after her grandfather, William Beatty Maxwell. Billy's niece, Pat Simpson, says, You would have had to have lived then, because there's no longer anyone living the kind of existence that we lived. I guess we were hillbilly, just people taking care of each other, very poor, not having a lot of money. We had to raise all the food we ate. There were no supermarkets or anything, and Billy was born into that kind of environment. 
Billy's father, a farmer and rancher, Curtis Maxwell, was a talented fiddler who formed a band and would travel around Arizona on horseback, playing folk songs he learned from his father, who himself was a talented musician who instilled a musical appreciation in each of his 28 children. Here's what Billy's niece had to say. The family was musical. It goes back three or four generations to my great-grandfather. He had 28 children, and every one of those children played a musical instrument. My father played violin, banjo, guitar, ukulele, and mandolin. Aunt Willie played guitar and piano and so forth, and so they had what they called the Maxwell Family Orchestra. I have to laugh when I see that term because there was only four members, and actually it was a hillbilly band. To call it an orchestra, I think, was overstating it a bit. None of that music had been written. It was just passed on from one generation to the other. The string band also called themselves the White Mountain Orchestra. Billy joined the band as a teenager, along with her brother, and played guitar for the group. Billy gets married in 1929, at the age of 23, to a schoolteacher named Alvin Chester Warner, and soon becomes pregnant with her first child. We heard in a previous episode, episode 10, about the popularization of Western-themed tunes by Adeline Hood, Vernon Dahlhart, and Carson Robison in the 20s. Ralph Peer comes searching the West for Western music he can copyright, and sets up in a studio in El Paso, Texas for Victor. Ralph Peer is looking for authenticity, remnants of a vanishing West. At the time, he advertised the sessions, saying, We want persons who have learned their songs years ago from old-timers, songs that are almost ballads. Pierce sends 30 telegrams to people living near El Paso, asking them to audition to make test records. He also advertises in local newspapers. Victor holds auditions in cities around El Paso, and the White Mountain Orchestra travel to Silver City to audition. They make the cut and then travel to El Paso to record. Today would be an easy five and a half hour drive. Back then, it was rough travel. Billy's niece says, by the time they got there, they were almost broke. After several breakdowns and flat tires and running out of gas and having nothing to eat and so forth. The White Mountain Orchestra records several songs, including Escudillo Waltz. Peer is impressed with Billy during the July 2nd session after she sings the ballad Billy Venero. Not a moment he delayed when his grave resolve was made. Why, man, his comrades told him when they heard of his daily plan. You are riding straight to death, but he answered, save your breath. I may never reap the calling, but I'll do the best I can. Peer asked Billy to record a few more solo songs on July 11th, and despite her retiring personality, she does, recording Arizona Girl I Left Behind, Cowboy's Wife, which we've heard, Haunted Hunter, and Where Your Sweetheart Waits for You. Here's how the El Paso Herald described Billy at the time. 
Mrs. Warner sat in a tourist camp just outside of El Paso and practiced her songs. Her voice is absolutely untrained, but it has a note of pathos and a note of sweetness that is sometimes lacking in a more brilliant performer. Billy Venero, the Arizona version of The Girl I Left Behind Me, and other airs, typically Western, she sings gently, as if she loved to sing them. She's pretty, of a gentle rather than vivid prettiness, with light brown hair that reaches her shoulders, and a shy expression in her face that seems to say, please like me a little. Here's one of the songs, The Haunted Hunter. A fierce chill came upon me like a shadow round me cast. I fell upon the snowdrift as a haunted hunter passed. The other trappers found me just at the break of day with my dark hair bleached as white as the snow on which I lay. The Haunted Hunter is based on a poem. The Walker in the Snow, by Charles Dawson Shanley, who was an Irish immigrant who wrote for Vanity Fair in the Atlantic Monthly. The poem is an early example of Canadian Gothic literature and inspired the William Blair Bruce painting The Phantom Hunter in 1888. The discs from the recording sessions were released with a label that said Billy Maxwell, the cowgirl singer. After the session, Peer asks if they could take a picture. Billy, a retiring personality, was shy to have her picture taken, and especially not when she was several months pregnant. But she agrees after they work out a solution. Billy would stand next to her horse in such a way that the horse would obscure her pregnant belly. It's a great photo, and more enjoyable knowing this story behind it. You can see the photo on the Wildwood Flower Instagram if you're curious. After the sessions, the White Mountain Orchestra continued to tour moving to New Mexico and frequenting a saloon called The Smokehouse. Billy gives birth to her first child and gives up her music career and never records again. She would have several more children and would die of cancer at the age of 48. For her entire life, her musical career was largely unheralded until folklorists in the 1960s discovered her music and marveled at this authentic cowgirl who resisted the spotlight and wrote with such unflinching clarity about domestic Western life. More recently, the Phoenix New Times would list Billy's song, A Cowboy's Wife, as one of the 100 songs that define Arizona, and herald her as Arizona's earliest recorded musician. Despite her rediscovery in the 60s, only a few country music writers note her contribution to country music in general instead marking the start of cowgirl music with the sweet and plucky girls of the Golden West and Patsy Montana in the 30s. Exactly how frequently does Billy Maxwell and her starkly realist songs come up in country music history books? Seldom, and that's a discouraging word. Thanks for listening to Wildwood Flower. We have one more episode left in season one. Next week we're going to talk about Lil Hardin Armstrong, her life and her historic recording with Jimmy Rogers and her estranged husband, Louis Armstrong. There's still time to submit cover songs for any artist we've talked about in this first season. Go back and listen, be inspired, tell your friends, send your covers my way. We'll do an all-covers episode soon. Ways to support me, ways to support women in music are found in the show description. Thanks for listening. Next week, Lil Hardin Armstrong.